Have you ever had a civil discussion with someone you disagreed with or who had a different perspective than you? If you have, what did you learn? Here on The Moderate Review, we try to have these kinds of discussions. So, let's talk. I'm your host, Jack Taggart, and on this episode of The Moderate Review, I continue my discussion with Lexi Smith, and we discuss some of the misconceptions about mental health and her recovery. So, let's talk. I guess this kind of goes hand in hand, I guess, but the next two questions are very similar. So, um, how do you maintain um, maintain your recovery? This is a kind of a difficult question to answer because I don't think I have to maintain my recovery. Do I? Yes, because it's my career. I'm always researching eating disorder things. I'm always posting about um, coping mechanisms, like healthy coping mechanisms or ways to ditch diet culture or whatever. So in that regard, yes, I'm maintaining my recovery because I've made it my career. But because I am fully recovered, I don't really have to maintain it because I'll try and I'll try and explain this a little bit better. There comes a point in your recovery where you're a functional human again. You're not thinking about food 24/7, you're not malnourished, you're a healthy-ish, you're a health you're healthy weight, your body's good to go. It's just your brain that's still a little bit lacking. And and you could live like that for the rest of your life. You'd be fine. You would physiologically be fine. Would it be a little difficult? Yeah, cuz you'd probably find yourself in some social situations where food would be really stressful. There'd be some anxiety there. Your relationship with food would just not be ideal. But there is that point that we kind of call um, either pseudo recovery or um, just like, I just call it like, I, I, I don't know. I really just refer to it as that kind of stage where you could, you could be done. You could say, I'm done. I've made it this far. It's good enough. It's good mm-hmm. enough. Um, that is when you'd have to maintain it. That's when you'd have to actively maintain an eating, like refrain from an eating disorder and maintain recovery. When you're fully recovered, you're fully recovered. You don't, um, there's not that anxiety around food. There's not that fear of crap. What if, um, what if I find myself in this hypothetical situation and I have to eat this certain food or what if, I'm going to hate my body when it changes because it is going to change when I'm pregnant, when I'm older, when I, whatever, there's so many what ifs. And so with, with full recovery, you don't really have to maintain it. With that being said, could I always go back to eating disorder, quote unquote tendencies? Yes. Because I remember what it was like to have an eating disorder. I could go back. I could give you a book of eating, how to have an eating disorder one-on-one. And I could do it if I wanted to. I would be stupid, but I could. And you have to choose recovery. And during your recovery, you have to actively choose that recovery every single day, day after day after day, even though sometimes you don't want to recover, which sounds ridiculous, but it's true. But yeah, as far as full recovery is concerned, I wouldn't say that you really have to maintain it. You really just have to choose recovery. But you also can't say, like, I can't sit here and say, I'm never going to relapse. I can't say that because statistically, the chance is still there. Mm. And it could happen. It could happen. There could be environmental changes in my life. I could move. I could get married. Those big changes, things often trigger. Um, I could come across those types of things and I could fall back into a relapse of my eating disorder. That's a possibility. And it always will be. I don't think it's likely. 
I just don't think it is. And so that's kind of the benefit of full recovery is doing that, going that extra mile. It's more like five miles, but going that extra, <laughs> going the extra mile and really, really digging deep, deeper than you think you can even dig and, and overcoming every last ounce of your eating disorder in order to reach full recovery. So it doesn't have to be a constant battle for you for the rest of your life. So like, how do you properly maintain and, and um, I guess, eat healthy as even as a college student? Mm, this is hard. This is hard because one time I have a therapist now and she said, because she asked me, she's like, you're going through a lot. Like, see, this is a few months ago. You have a lot of anxiety and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I know you have a history with an eating disorder. How's it looking? How's your relationship with food looking? And I was like, you know what? It's looking great. Honestly, and then I can't remember what I said, but I was like, it's fast and easy and then cheap. Like that's basically my food right now. If it's grab and go and it's cheap, that's what I eat. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I live off of four for fours and TV dinners. Okay. Like this is, it's just my life. And then <laughs> if I'm feeling really fancy, maybe I'll like make myself a smoothie, but it, like legitimately it's just grab and go chips and whatever. Um, but like with meal planning, I honestly could do better. And I think that there's two different versions of meal planning. Okay. There's meal planning and my mom is super great at it. So we'll go example number one, like the mom style meal planning. When you have a calendar and you plan, okay, we're kids, we're having this for dinner tonight because I need to go grocery shopping and buy all the ingredients for it. That's healthy meal planning. That's fine. You should do that. I should probably do more of that so that I know what I'm eating instead of just opening the fridge and grazing for dinner. Um, but then there's kind of like unhealthy meal planning. And that's what I was doing. I personally don't agree with like meal prepping on Sundays for the whole week where you make the same food for like every single meal. You eat Oof, the same lunch yeah. every day for the week. No, 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 no. That is just not, uh, no. Yeah, you're the burnt out, yeah. Yes, just don't, just stop it. Or meal planning so strictly that like you can't switch meals around. Um, just calorie counting each of your meals and organizing them so that they fit within a certain budget. Thinking of it kind of as what I call food economics. Um, so that's kind of like, the second version of meal planning. That's what I was doing. And I don't agree with, I don't support, I don't encourage anyone to do that. So as a college student and as I'm kind of meal planning, when I go grocery shopping, I just try and get a lot of foods that are easy and quick and convenient. And so I'll grab, um, so for example, for lunches, sometimes I'll have a Lunchable. Sometimes I'll have like the little pre-made salads where you like dumping the chicken and the, and the dressing and the cheese and whatever, and you stir it up and you have a Southwest salad or whatever. Sometimes I'll be like, okay, I have a frozen pizza I'm going to make. Um, it's just a, a variety of different things that I would say is just, just brings a lot of balance. Same with like breakfasts. Sometimes I have toaster strudels with frosting on the top. Other times I have, you know, um, like egg sausage sandwich, breakfast sandwiches um, and yogurt and smoothies. It just really all depends. And then for dinners, Dinners are hard because it's like so hard to make something just for one person. So a lot of times I like to yeah. make stuff with my roommates. We'll be like, okay, who's on dinner tonight? You know, let's make some orange chicken and rice or some Costa Vida salads or um, crock pot, whatever, chili or I don't know. Um, just so just a variety is really what I like to do. And and there is convenience in, in food for sure. And um, like I don't like to use the word processed because – it just doesn't, I don't know, it just doesn't really make sense to me. But um, like, if you wanted to say that I eat a lot of processed foods right now, yeah, I do. I definitely eat what are considered processed foods. I like, 
And guess what? I'm still fine. I'm still living my best life. I'm happy. I'm healthy. And, um, and I'm doing great. And so I think it's really just about balance and variety. So like, could you maybe describe maybe like the process or maybe the timeline of how mental health was treated then like way back when I, I, I dare say probably hundred years ago till, till now, or it's obviously more mainstream and more yes, right. acceptable to talk about. Well, I mean, I don't know the specifics, but I can promise you that we don't practice. I don't even know what it's called where you drain all people's blood out. Yeah. Oh, we don't do that loving. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> don't recommend that. Um, so I think treatment, treatment is so cool because it continues to just develop. And back in the day, I think everyone really had an idea of like, really like a Freudian perspective of, of mental health of like, if, especially of therapy, like if I'm going to therapy, I'm laying on a couch and someone's going to take notes and I don't know what's going to happen to me, but like, um, and just very, very stigmatized or like everyone thought everyone, if you had a mental health issue, you needed to be in the mental hospital and that you were insane and crazy and whatever. Um, I couldn't tell you what the like ancient practices of mental health treatment were. I have no idea, but I do know that within the last like 100, 150 years, so much has changed and continued technology and education transforms the treatment process. Um, I'm familiar with eating disorders in particular, um, as well as like depression, anxiety and stuff like that. Um, I'm not as familiar with treatments such as like schizophrenia, disassociative identity disorder, um, PTSD, any traumas, personality disorders. I just don't know as much about them because it's not my area of expertise, I would say. But um, like just for example, with eating disorders, back in the day, it was often um, a lot of just like tough love, which is important in eating disorder recovery. Very, very important in eating disorder recovery. But nowadays we have feeding tubes which are great. And they never did that back in the day. And they never had inpatient back in the day. They never had a full recovery team and stuff like that. They just kind of stuffed you full of whatever you needed and sent you home. And so, um, and now it's like, okay, we're going to give you continued support until we reach a point where you're actually stable and that's helpful. And what I think is super cool, even about like depression, we've moved on to like, okay, look, there's medications because science is cool and science is real and it works. And if that doesn't work, we try a different medication. And if that doesn't work, we try different things. And just yesterday I was reading a new, a new study that has come out for um, OCD and depression in, in um, kind of in the eating disorder world, because oftentimes those two or three things often coexist. So for individuals that are experiencing those things, they have basically like it's called TMS, which is like this magnetic, I don't, I couldn't even explain to you how it works. This magnetic thing that sits on your head and it does magic things and you're cured. I'm just kidding. You're not cured, but, um, if only it was that easy, if only you could just take a pill and everything was fixed. Um, no, but like really treatment continues to just progress and it's so amazing to me. And it's, it is super hopeful because if one thing doesn't work, we can try something else. And, um, unfortunately you're not the first person to experience this. You won't be the last. There's people that have gone before you and people that will come after. And so we're constantly trying to find the next best thing that is the cheapest, the most affordable, the most available and, and the most helpful for treatment and for recovery. What are some, I guess, common misconceptions about, um, mental health? Mm. Where to begin? I would say the first thing is just. St the stigma is so strong 
And even though mental health has kind of been this like buzzword recently, everyone's like, oh, mental health, mental health, mental health, mental health. There's still a stigma behind even like mental illness. There's a stigma behind getting help. No one ever, I don't like, I literally could count on like one hand how many times people have been like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't hang out. I'm going to therapy. Like no one ever says that. But people are like, oh yeah, sorry, I'm taking off work. I've got a dentist appointment. Or, oh, I got to go to physical therapy. That's fine. Society is all fine and dandy with that. But when we're going to, I have to go to Walmart to fill up my prescription. Everyone's like, huh? You're what? For why? And it's just so stigmatized. And I think the first part of that is starting conversations bringing it up when you're going to therapy say yeah I'm going to therapy today sorry I'll have to call you later like I just it's just a part of your life and I've learned that for me my mental health probably has to have a little bit more care than the regular average human being it's just how it is my mental health just needs a little bit of extra love and so does a lot of people um I think there are some things that are super stigmatized Something that's coming to my mind, like, um, with eating disorders in particular is, like, fat phobia, um, privilege, a lot of thin privilege, um, or availability of treatment, including, like, I live with so much privilege. It's insane, and I'm incredibly grateful, but I, I'm literally a straight, cisgendered, white, young, thin female. Like, I, I, I don't think I could literally live with pretty much any more privilege. And, and so I recognize that, but there's so many that don't, and there's so many that don't have access to treatment. And, and I like to kind of pass the mic to them to kind of tell their own story because I just can't, I just don't know what that's like. And I won't try to pretend what their struggles are like, but the access to treatment is not as convenient as I wish it was. Things that I would guess are related to, to mental health and, and stigma surrounding it are really just those main focuses. The fact that we the fact that we focus so much on our physical health and not on our mental health, or that we have full classes. We have health classes that really talk about um, drugs, STDs, and nutrition. That's pretty much it. And then we have financial aid classes that'll teach you about adult roles and financial literacy and budgeting and how to write a check and you know all this fun stuff. And then we have like calculus that. And everyone could care less about, but no one has classes about how to maintain your mental health. Like mm. when it, when is that ever on the the lists of? It's not. Yeah, it's just not. And so I think education is a big one. Even like politics, you can vote for mental health. You can, in different political parties, in different positions, there are individuals who advocate more for mental health who will pass bills for education, voting for like getting paid mental health days off of work, just different things like that. Like um, there's so many small ways, but really I don't think, I wish there was some major thing we all could do and it would just be fixed, but it's not. It's starting small. It's having conversations. It's speaking up. It's, it's, I, my favorite form of advocacy is t-shirts. I wear things on my t on shirts. I have a shirt that says therapy is cool. Shout out to Tiffany Rowe. I have a t-shirt that says, be kind to your mind. I have a t-shirt that says, I'm an eating disorder survivor. Or I have one that says, don't be a butthole to yourself. I have one that says, um, 
eating disorders don't discriminate. Just that's my favorite form of advocacy is starting conversations. And so that's what I would say. Sorry, that was kind of a that was kind of a oh, tangent, but you're good. There you go. Yeah, you're good. You're good. I guess let me backtrack on a little bit. You talked about thin privilege and a little bit more about privilege. Can you maybe elaborate more on that? Because for one, I I feel like I've not been able to get a good definition of what privilege and I guess more specifically what thin privilege is. Yeah, so we'll see if I can kind of come up with a, a good definition definition of this. Um, I would say that privilege in general is living with kind of the advantage that often goes unrecognized simply because of typically a physical characteristic that you were born with. For example, I'm not a part of any major marginalized group. Fat phobia is particularly targeted towards individuals in bigger bodies. Transphobia is targeted toward individuals that are transgender. Let's, I'm trying to think of other ones. Okay, um, racism, as far as like skin color, is targeted towards people of color um, that are black, brown, whatever. And I don't experience the things that they experience simply because of those characteristics. And so those things manifest themselves in in ways such as like think healthcare so for example fat phobia you walk into the doctor's office for um i don't know your back hurts your knees hurt something hurts and you're like hey doc something's not right can you please help me figure this out and you leave and all they tell you is it's weight loss you just have to lose weight bs that's not why like Mm. things like that like if i Mm. walked in there and said the exact same thing they'd say oh my gosh Let's take a look at this. Let's check this out. What's wrong with your freaking knees? Not, oh, Mm. you need weight loss. Like, come on, people. I wouldn't be discriminated against in certain ways, like the LGBTQ community. I wouldn't be, I'm not fearful of what happens if I get pulled over for speeding. I don't worry about not having access to treatment in the mental health field. I don't worry about that kind of thing. And, and so a lot of it I take for granted and I try, I try to recognize that and to really emphasize their story, especially on my podcast. I try to really get a diversity of, of individuals and opinions and perspectives to, to really educate myself and, and diversify my own social media and my own individual kind of like who I'm surrounded with and, and who I talk to and, and all of these different things because all of our experiences are so different and I think that's beautiful. I think it's a lovely concept. One of my favorite things is body diversity. I love it. I love looking at a group of people and saying, this one's tall, this one's short, this one's this one's dark, this one's light, this one's fat, this one's thin, this one's whatever. And and I just I love that. I think it's I think it's a beautiful concept. And I think that that privilege is so taken for granted and so unnoticed kind of winding down a bit i guess maybe could you talk to me about possible different uh, treatment methods and maybe also talk more about what are healthy coping mechanisms and what are not so i would say like for mental health treatment is really focused on like talk therapy is one that you'll hear a lot psychotherapy um super helpful a lot of it is cbt which is cognitive behavioral therapy a uh, kind of a branch of that that's popular is dbt dialectical behavioral therapy Um, we're getting new technologies such as EMDR, which is app rapid. Let me think. Eye movement, rapid 
desensitization, something along those lines. Um, super cool technologies that we can use for therapy as far as long as, um, as well as like medication and, and those types of prescriptions and things like that. So treatment has really come a long way. And what I think is important is to take advantage of it if you need it. Do we all need to become a pill popper? No. But if we legitimately are in need of, of medication or if we are legitimately in need of even preventative therapy, which is kind of what I suggest, you don't have to wait until crisis to ask for help, please, please take advantage of it, especially if you have that available. Um, I would say like help, healthy coping mechanisms. Your toolbox has to be stocked, okay? When you don't go get the tools when you're in the middle of a project, right? You bring your toolbox before the before the project happens, okay? You got to create these coping skills before they're needed. And so sometimes that's legitimately creating like a physical box of things <laughs> that you can pull out in a time of need. Sometimes that's just creating like a mental toolbox, which is more of what I do. And for me, those are like journaling, meditation, yoga, taking a walk, taking a shower, um, just because it is relaxing, talking to someone. Sometimes uh, I will, let me think, I will read a book, take some time off, um, just rest, really prioritize my sleep, make sure I'm taking my medication. Those are coping skills to me. That's also kind of a form of, it kind of overlaps with self-care and, and self-love. Um, and prioritizing those things are is critical, really, for me. Um, I wouldn't be able to maintain my level of productivity, I guess, um, without those things and without that balance. And so I think there's, there's so many different coping mechanisms. Um, and you can't just have one, you have to have a handful because some of them will be better in certain situations and some will be better in others. And, and everyone is different. So you might be into, I mean, exercise is a good one, depending on what that looks like for you. Um, or, I mean, drawing, art, being more creative, listening to music. I like to take drives, just go for a drive if I'm in a healthy and non-aggressive mindset, safe driving. Um, <laughs> just taking, just taking no a drive. Right yep, yep. We don't want, we don't want that. But just taking a, a, a nice Sunday afternoon drive, you know, um, listening to some music, playing the piano, um, listening to a podcast, laying on the floor, whatever just just calming down my brain quieting my mind a little bit those are my coping mechanisms and i guess maybe what would be a few examples of uh bad coping mechanisms mm, unhealthy coping mechanisms unhealthy coping mechanisms would be like the first one that always comes to my head is like substance abuse um i would say like how do i word this like a not good relationship with money like say you go on like spending sprees like you just go on shopping sprees. That's not a good coping mechanism. Keeping yourself too busy and numbing your emotions. That's what I tend to do. Not a good coping mechanism. <sighs> Let's think. Even things like obsessive, like an eating disorder, unhealthy coping mechanism. That's legitimately the perfect example. I mean, there's there's a bunch is that I guess like, anything to an extreme could be an unhealthy coping mechanism. Um, but really things that are harmful to your physical or mental well-being is kind of what is targeted as an un un unhealthy coping mechanism. So those are kind of the few that come off the top of my head, but I'm sure like even like say you're obsessed with getting tattoos, that could be an unhealthy, or tanning, like you're obsessed mm. with self-tanner, 
<laughs> which is like a legit thing. Um, that could be an unhealthy coping mechanism. Just, I don't know, whatever, whatever it could be, or say you watch Netflix all day, every day. Yeah. It's probably an unhealthy coping mechanism from dealing with your, dealing with whatever's going on. Um, so there's, there's just a bunch of different things. Some things are more obvious than others, but, um, a lot of unhealthy coping mechanisms that we can turn and use that time and that energy into something else that is healthy and productive and, and ultimately leads to, to greater happiness anyway. If any of my listeners wanted to find out more about you or your podcast or mental health in general, um, where would they go to find out? Yeah. So First of all, I guess if they're already listening to your podcast, they're probably into podcasts. So my podcast is called the Every Ounce Podcast. That can be found wherever you get your podcasts. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, Anchor, wherever. Um, And then Instagram is kind of the main hub of where I'm at. I post um, fairly regularly. You can find some really super great resources there. Um, And my Instagram is at Every Ounce of Strength. So every ounce of strength on Instagram. And then my website is also linked there. So if you want to go to my website, it's linked there. And that's probably the easiest way to get to it. This concludes my interview with Lexi Smith. As I was working on the editing, it kind of hit me when Lexi mentioned that there is a lack of education when it comes to mental health. We are taught about physical health as well as other topics in school, but not mental health. Why is that? For my personal experience, it would have been very useful to learn about mental health and how to best deal with mental health issues then rather than figuring it out as things happened. But the past is in the past and there is no better time to learn about mental health than now. If you or a loved one is struggling with any mental health issues, please get help. Until next time, I'm your host, Jack Taggart. The views expressed in the moderate review are solely of the individuals participating and not necessarily of the organizations they are affiliated with. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please tell your friends, and please follow us on Twitter at tmodrev, that is the letter T, modrev, one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Jack Taggart.